Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3, WBPULP St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can follow us on Podbean, uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. That's uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. My name is Jamie Simpson. We have a great show today. Every week, Reparations in Action discusses some of the most pressing issues of these times of a colonial system that is in profound crisis. We sum up the events of the week as white people in solidarity with the African Revolution through the eyes of the African working class and the political theory of African internationalism. Under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, we believe reparations is a question that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to begin by saluting Black Power 96.3 WBPULP in St. Petersburg and the African People's Education and Defense Fund, or APEDF, the nonprofit that guides the work of this radio station, whose mission statement is to address the grave disparities faced by the African community in economic development, health, and health care and education. So we begin by turning to the struggle in St. Louis that has emerged between the Black Power Blueprint program known around the world for its visionary and transformational development work in the impoverished African community of North St. Louis and the colonial establishment of the St. Louis city government. Specifically, the Ward 21 Alderman John Muhammad has refused to sign a letter of approval for the purchase of two LRA or Land Reutilization Authority properties by the Black Power Blueprint. Mohammed claims that the LRA director, Laura Costello, said that Black Power Blueprint's parent organization, the African People's, the African People's Education and Defense Fund, has not made good on any of the LRAs they have purchased. For the last three years, the Uhuru movement has worked in the heart of North St. Louis, renovating properties and building economic programs, raising the standard of living for the working class African community. APEDF has spent over $400,000 in North St. Louis to bring self-determination and self-reliance to the long-abandoned African community. Last Monday, the Black Power Blueprint held a press conference outside the Uhuru House and Community Garden, an outdoor venue space, to challenge Muhammad and the LRA for attempting to, quote, put the brakes on the Black economic progress in Ward 21. Here is a clip of Tacharwa Masimba, the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint, speaking at the press conference, followed by Kalambayi Amdanet, President of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, and a statement from Penny Hess, Chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee. Alderman Muhammad has not signed the letter of approval uh, that we are seeking because he is in unity with the city's agenda to gentrify North St. Louis for white people. Muhammad is in pocket, in the pocket of the big, the big banks, the investors, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency who are buying up this land for white development. He would like nothing more than to help gentrify North St. Louis so that he and his friends can benefit, benefit from rising property values. 
Alderman Muhammad has stated that the LRA director, Laura Costello, claims that the African People's Education and Defense Fund, APEDF, the parent organization of the Black Power Blueprint, has not improved our LRA properties. This is a demonstrable lie. For the past three years, the AHU movement has worked in the heart of the most deprived communities, renovating properties and building economic programs that uplift and help raise the standard of living of our people. In fact, we've raised over $400,000 uh, towards the projects from supporters and from fundraisers. We have built, we have brought nothing but black contractors into a process of building um, the Hoover House. They have came afterwards and donated to this project, believing in what we have, what we do. We have community rallies here for the community where we talk about issues. See, this is a new day. And this is strange to a lot of people because a lot of times the African working class have not been organized. But the African People's Socialist Party is here. The Black Power Blueprint is here. EPDOM is here to be a voice to the African working class. I live south of the Del Mar Divide, which is the blatant and raw reminder that this city is built on the enslavement of African people and represents two completely different realities, economic and political, one at the expense of the other. St. Louis City has done everything possible to maintain the poverty and hopelessness of this black community for the benefit of white people. From the Team 4 plan to the continuation of the let it rot, as have been said, and violent police containment policies, the city's strategy is based on starving an oppressed community and pushing them out. That was Tacharwa Masimba, Kalambayi on the net, and Penny Hess speaking at the press conference yesterday, which was live streamed on Real St. Louis News and has been viewed by over 16,000 people and inspired a huge outpouring of community support for the Black Power Blueprint and outrage at the assault on the Black community by the politician John Muhammad. Uhuru Jesse, in that press conference, Tacharwa Masimba, Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint, read a powerful statement. Based on that statement, could you tell us who is John Muhammad and what is the Black Power Blueprint demanding from him and the city? Uhuru, Jamie, uh, thank you so much for covering this important struggle on reparations and action. And I just want to appreciate you and salute this radio show, as well as Black Power 96.3 FM and the African People's Education and Defense Fund and just want to mention that I am a member of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, the organization of white people working under the leadership of Chairman Omali Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party, going into the white community and organizing other white people like me, and like you, to stand in solidarity with the struggle of the African working class that is fighting for power over their own lives and resources which is the only way that the colonial violence and terror that we see happening against the black community in this country every single day is ever going to end. And from that point, I just want to unite with the incredible statements and uh, press conference and struggle 
that is being waged by the Black Power Blueprint in St. Louis and just express my deep unity with the African community there and the statement that was made by T'Charo Masimba. I highly encourage anybody who didn't get to see the whole press conference to go to Real St. Louis News Facebook page and join the 16,000 other people who have watched the incredible hour-long video. Um, and I just wanted to quote from the statement that was made by T'Charo Masimba, the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint, regarding that struggle. He said, quote, we are here today representing residents, leaders, supporters, and stakeholders of the Black Power Blueprint to denounce the underhanded actions of the LRA administration and Ward 21 Alderman John Collins Muhammad. Alderman Muhammad is attempting to block progress uplifting our long neglected community by refusing to sign a letter of approval for the purchase and renovation of two LRA properties right here in this neighborhood as part of the Black Power Blueprint program. The Black Power Blueprint has brought new life, pride, and inspiration to this once vibrant Northside Black community wiped out by longstanding anti-Black policies of the city of St. Louis geared to push the Black community out and make North St. Louis and Ward 21 white. The huge red, black, and green flag flying from the beautiful newly developed outdoor garden and event space across the street from the Uhuru House at West Florissant and Alice is known and loved throughout the community. So T'Charo Masimba of the Black Power Blueprint continued in his statement, Alderman John Muhammad has not signed this letter because he is in unity with the city's agenda to gentrify North St. Louis for white people. Muhammad is in the pocket of the big banks, investors, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency who are buying up this land for white development. He would like nothing more than to gentrify North St. Louis so that he and his friends can then benefit from rising property values. Alderman Muhammad has stated that LRA Director Laura Costello claims that the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the parent organization of the Black Power Blueprint, has not improved our LRA properties. That is a demonstrable lie. And goes on to talk about the work of the Black Power Blueprint in St. Louis, including demolishing two LRA buildings on four lots at 4031 West Florissant, creating a beautiful destination spot with the vegetable garden and event space, the plan to launch a community farmer's market in the spring of 2021, which would be happening right now if not for the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, and compared that to Charo Masimba, compared that to Alderman Muhammad's gardens down the street in both directions, which are nothing but a fenced-in bundle of weeds. So it was really clear the contrast between the agenda of progress and genuine economic development and self-determination that is being advanced by the Black Power Blueprint with great engagement and community enthusiasm, um, as opposed to the agenda of gentrification and one-sided development for the big white moneyed interests of St. Louis on the other. So it's a powerful struggle. And I, once again, salute the statement made by Tacharo Masimba at the press conference. Wow, thank you for that, that clarity, Jesse. You know, uh, Penny Hess has referred to the Del Mar divide as a raw and, butyl, uh, and brutal reminder of the colonial disparities that exist between African and white people in the city of St. Louis. Could you talk to us about the conditions of the African community in St. Louis as opposed to those experienced by white people 
living south of the Del Mar Divide. Definitely, Jamie. I mean, in many ways, anybody who has crossed Central Avenue in St. Petersburg has seen the Del Mar Divide. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much the same. However, I have actually been to St. Louis many times uh, to organize with the Uhuru Solidarity Movement under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party. And one of the times that I was there, I took an Uber to the Uhuru House in North St. Louis in, in the colonized African community. And the Uber driver was a Muslim man from an Arab country. And he remarked about, uh, upon the state of the community. He, he looked out the window at all of the abandoned buildings of all of the dilapidated structures throughout North St. Louis. And he said that it reminded him of bombed out neighborhoods that had been attacked by US imperialism in his home country. And mm -hmm. that comparison is very appropriate on many levels. If you look at the statistics, beyond just being able to see it with your own eyes. I mean, it is really extreme. I mean, you see it. You don't need statistics to be able to see the difference between the prosperity on the south side of the Del Mar Divide and the abject colonial poverty on the north side. You can literally drive five minutes, and within a five-minute drive, you can find yourself looking out the window at uh, shattered windows and boarded-up buildings and then five minutes later, you're looking at, you know, mansions with, you know, freshly maintained lawns and white picket fences. Um, so it's very, very glaring. And as Chairwoman Penny so eloquently stated, the Del Mar Divide is a raw and blatant reminder of those colonial disparities. In terms of sheer numbers, the colonial disparities are very stark. The average Black family in St. Louis lives below the poverty line. A family of four, after taxes, lives on about $5 per day per person. Now, I just wanna say that again. A black family of four in St. Louis, after taxes, lives on $5 a day per person. African people in St. Louis are three times more likely to be unemployed and to live in poverty than white people in St. Louis. White people, on average, have 44 times more money than African people do. An average of 144,000 for the average white person versus a mere 3,600 for the average African. 40% of African children grow up in what's called deep poverty in St. Louis. African drivers in Missouri are 91% more likely than white motorists to be pulled over by police. In fact, after the murder of Mike Brown in 2014, the, I believe it was the Department of Justice investigation or something that was done there actually revealed that the entire political economy of Ferguson revolved around uh, parking tickets and, and uh, you know, driving citations and things given to Africans for various supposed, you know, speeding violations and things like that. Like there was a whole political economy that revolved around pulling over Africans, routine traffic stops, things of that nature, and arresting and, and citing African drivers. And, uh, and Jesse, didn't they have to rearrange the city government to some extent in, uh, in Ferguson, at least after Mike Brown was killed because uh, the 
the nonsense that you're talking about, about basing the entire economy on the oppression of African people became so public? Yes, they did. They had to, of course, mask the, you know, the, the open white colonial oppression of African people uh, behind you know, a more neo-colonial appearance. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a direct response to the courageous uprisings of African people. And so just going into more of these statistics, uh, a, a quarter of African people in St. Louis are facing severe housing problems, and 25% of African people are hungry in the city of St. Louis, left without access to quality food or grocery stores. You know, they come up with a lot of words like euphemisms, like food insecurity. People are starving. Children are mm-hmm. starving. Families mm-hmm. don't know whether they're going to be able to feed their children from week to week. That's what we're talking about. So this is, these are the conditions that exist. These are the conditions that the Black Power Blueprint has been working to overturn. And these are the conditions to which we have been called upon to respond to by building a movement within the white community for reparations to African people. That also includes calling on white people to take a stand against what the city government of St. Louis is doing. Because everything the government of St. Louis does is designed to deepen the poverty and the oppression of African people. They actually have a policy whose slogan is let it rot. They allow the properties to deteriorate so that they can move in and take over and basically complete their master plan of turning North St. Louis white. And this is a strategy that has involved such parasitic white big developers as Paul McKee, who has purchased millions of dollars worth of property on the north side and allowed the buildings to fall apart and uh, who, was, who also played a key role in help, helping the city to acquire the uh, 99 acres of land and move out the African uh, people living on that 99 acres where the National Geospatial Intelligence military compound is currently uh, in the process of, of being brought into existence. And from what I've heard, it actually is pretty much complete. And it is plain and simple, a military base right there in in the center of the colonized North St. Louis African community. Wow. You know, the, the stakes just couldn't be any greater. This the, the significance of this struggle just can't be overstated. And yep. we, the, the real St. Louis news has covered this press conference. And again, I want to remind, you know, you that this has been seen by 16,000 people and yeah. uh that's that's shown a huge response for for the community um jesse can can you talk about this community's response both from the african community to this struggle as well as from the the white community which uh, i know the african people's uh, solidarity committee is working to organize definitely so from what i heard from comrades who are in st louis including from chairwoman penny hess and kitty riley and casey Mackey and others there was a an unbelievable response from the community. And I actually, I watched the video so I could see all of the people who crowded around, people came out from the community. Um, There was a tour of the Black Power Blueprint that took place afterwards. And there was just a strong outpour of community support. And people love the Black Power Blueprint. I mean, there are people from the African community who have come to events and gotten on the microphone and said, I was preparing to move myself and my family out of North St. Louis but the Black Power Blueprint has convinced us to stay because this is a beacon of of hope for the community. So it is so significant. And that red, black, and green flag that just shimmers in in the wind um, 
you know, the, the largest red, black, and green flag possibly anywhere, uh, certainly in, anywhere in St. Louis, flying right there in the heart of North St. Louis. It's, it's incredibly awe-inspiring and beautiful. And entire school buses of African children have slowed down and cheered when passing by the red, black, and green flag outside of the Black Power Blueprint headquarters at the Uhura House. So in addition to that, white people are definitely coming forward. Um, I really want to appreciate the statement that Penny Hess made. Um, and I particularly appreciated the part where she said that she speaks for many white people in St. Louis who want to stand on the right side of the question, who want to um, back the Black Power Blueprint and take a principled stand for reparations to the Black community. And there are many white people in St. Louis. The Uhuru Solidarity Movement in St. Louis is building for a national march for reparations to African people on October 17th that is calling upon white people to come out and take a stand for reparations and in solidarity with Black self-determination. For the last several weeks, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement has been hosting actions in St. Louis in front of Bank of America demanding reparations to the Black Power Blueprint from that particular parasitic bank. So it's very powerful and I know that the struggle continues and tonight there is going to be a web show hosted by the Black Power Blueprint on their Facebook and YouTube channels um, that is going to be discussing the struggle with the LRA and John Collins Muhammad at um, tonight Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on, on blackpowerblueprint.com, uh, or I'm sorry, on Black Power Blueprint's Facebook and YouTube channels. And I know T'Charo Masimba will be speaking on that event. Wow. Thank you for that report, Jesse. Now we will go to a music break and return with our next segment. in action here I'm my name is Jamie Simpson and I'm here with the Uhuru Solidarity Movement chair Jesse Neville Jesse let's talk about the ongoing campaign of Uhuru Solidarity Movement to target the moneyed sector or the so-called 1% Uhuru Jamie so yeah I'm really looking forward to continuing to discuss this important question of reparations and the struggle that the Uhuru Solidarity Movement has been called to carry out by the African People's Socialist Party to demand reparations from the Wall Street bankers and the ruling class. And in particular, we are setting our sights on Bank of America. And I just wanted to salute Chairman Amali Shetela for leading around the question of reparations for many years and really fighting to win the understanding that reparations is the returning of the stolen loot, the stolen resources that have been robbed systematically from African people for hundreds of years back into the hands of African people everywhere and really forces us as white people to confront the reality 
that there are two Americas, there are two St. Louises, as we just heard, there are two St. Petersburgs. There is the reality of the colonizer. That's us, white people. There's the wealth, the assumption of a future of prosperity and security and opportunity. And then there's the nightmare that is imposed on the lives of every African colonized person inside this country and around the world. That white people have access to social wealth. We have the ability to get ourselves out of a bind, to borrow money, to find somebody in our family who can help us out. Um, most white people are not worried about starving. And that is not the case for most African people in this country. And what we're seeing today is the reparations demand is becoming a mass demand, which has always been the goal of the chairman and the African People's Socialist Party, to make reparations a household word, to make reparations a popular revolutionary demand of the African masses. And when it becomes a mass demand, it becomes a material force, as the saying goes. When theory grips the masses, it becomes a material force. And we're seeing that happen right now. We're seeing actions being carried out that are built on this understanding that reparations is the righteous repossession of stolen resources by the colonized and exploited African working class into their own hands. Uh, a few weeks ago, when we had the chairman on to discuss the uprisings that took place in Chicago after a brutal police murder that took place there, where the mayor was actually forced to come out and say, I support the, the righteous uprisings in Minneapolis, but I condemn the looting that is going on in Chicago. And of course, uh, Joe Biden, who is being painted by his Republican opponent as being a radical socialist who sympathizes with the looting and the rioting, has come out very strongly to clarify to the world that he is in fact uh, just as much of a pig as Donald Trump and that he is as vehemently opposed to quote unquote looting and rioting as Trump is. And um, it's important to look at the articulations coming out of the African community in Chicago, where African people have actually been interviewed in the press, including activists and leaders within the struggle there, where they have echoed the sentiments of Chairman Amali Shatella by saying, actually, this is not looting, this is reparations. This is reparations for African people to take back what belongs to us, um, is what these, you know, these courageous African people have been saying. And I just wanted to show the deepening influence of the question of reparations within uh, the world. This article was published in Yahoo News. It's an editorial and it's called Chicago Looting, I'm putting, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, proves Black America deserves reparations. Here's why. And this is the article. In the summer of 2020, uh, the summer of 2020 has been a summer defined by agitation. What started in Minnesota following the police killing of George Floyd spread quickly across the nation. This past week, Kenosha, Wisconsin became the latest flashpoint as protesters clashed with police and armed vigilantes over the police shooting of 29-year-old Jacob Blake. One of those vigilantes was charged with killing two protesters and injuring another. But another Midwestern city, my city, was the center of attention three weeks ago. In the early hours of August 10th, caravans from across the city ransacked high-end stores in and around downtown after rumors circulated on social media that Chicago police 
had shot and killed a 15-year-old black boy on the South Side. Police did shoot 20-year-old Latrell Allen, who is black, the day before. Police allege Allen fired gunshots at them, but officers were not equipped with body-worn cameras, and no other footage of the incident has been made available. Allen is expected to recover. Images of people walking in and out of department stores with their hands full of products transfixed a confused nation. Well, let's say the white nation. Mayor Lori Lightfoot called the looting an assault on Chicago, while Reverend Jesse Jackson said it was humiliating and morally wrong. But young black activists pushed back. Quote, when protesters attack high-end retail stores that are owned by the wealthy and service the wealthy, that is not our city and has never been meant for us. This was an issue statement, uh, a statement issued by uh, black organizers in Chicago. These protesters can only end when the safety and well-being of our communities is finally prioritized. Once the looting stopped, the nation's attention quickly moved on. But the problems endemic to Chicago, the problems that provided the tinder for this particular blaze remain, and they deserve to be addressed. Prioritizing black communities has always been a problem for Chicago. Since arriving in mass during the Great Migration more than a century ago, black Chicagoans have been violently relegated to the margins, exploited at every turn, and expected to do more with less. Racism in Chicago even shocked Martin Luther King Jr., who said he had never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as the ones he saw here. The Chicago Police Department has often served as the tip of the spear most egregiously showcased in the killing of Black Panther Fred Hampton and the reports of decades of torture of Black residents under former police commander John Burge and his midnight crew. The legacy of systemic racism, as, and I'm interjecting here, what we understand from Chairman Amali Shatella is colonialism, is at the root of the deep poverty gripping Chicago's Black neighborhoods today. Like any other segregated city in, in America, everything in Chicago has to do with geography. In Streeterville, a mostly white and rich neighborhood north of downtown that saw many shops torn up, the average life expectancy is 90, okay? So the average life expectancy is 90 years old for white people in the area that got so-called looted. But the average life expectancy for African people in the black working class neighborhood where police shot Latrell Allen is 60. Englewood, Chicago, 60 years old is the average life expectancy. That is the largest life expectancy gap between neighborhoods in the same city anywhere in the country, according to a study by New York University School of Medicine released last year. And that is parasitism. That is parasitism. That is colonialism. Those 30 years of extra life enjoyed by the average white person in Streeterville have been looted from the Africans in Englewood through colonial oppression, through genocidal policies of police containment and gentrification. I'm putting that in brackets because that's not in the article, but I think that's a really important point that has to be made. So um, the article goes on to say that disparities like those reflect decades of disinvestment and disregard for black people's health and well-being, most recently highlighted by the announced closure of Mercy Hospital on the South Side, 
When that hospital shuts its doors next year, it will be the third to close since 2008 that serves mostly black low-income patients in the Chicago area, creating what community activists are calling a healthcare desert. So we have food deserts, which is a buzzword for places where Africans are being forced to starve. And now we have healthcare deserts, which is where Africans are being denied quality to even the basic right of quality healthcare, being denied access, I should say, to the basic right of quality healthcare. And this is in the midst of a devastating colonial virus that is, has disproportionately impacted upon African people in Chicago and elsewhere. Chicago's black neighborhoods, now this is important because we wanna talk about these banks, Jamie, and why we're targeting Bank of America and why we're targeting Wall Street. Chicago's black neighborhoods have been plundered for decades. An analysis of home loans from 2012 through 2018 by NPR affiliate WBEZ and City Bureau, a local journalism nonprofit, found that for every $1 banks loaned in Chicago's white neighborhoods, they invested 12 cents in the city's black neighborhoods. In 2005, black homeowners earning $100,000 or more a year were more likely to get saddled with expensive mortgages than white homeowners earning less than $35,000. So that is the colonial question, that even African people who are able to earn more money than some white people are still being messed over at a higher rate, are still being uh, pushed into you know, these conditions by the colonial system. The trend and, and is, yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Well, just, I, I'm shocked at some of these numbers, Jesse. I think it's, it's so important that we grapple with this, like the, the idea of 12 cents on the dollar invested in the black community versus the white community. And, uh, you know, the, the shocking disparity in, in resources, the shocking disparity in, in more debt for the African community. And this is just out of Chicago. And I'm, what, what I wanted to point out was that we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic. We're in the midst of a period where we're seeing more applications for unemployment, more uh, people losing their homes, uh, people being evicted. And uh, it occurs to me that most of these numbers must have been compiled before the pandemic's effects were really felt. So if it was this yeah. bad already, imagine how bad it is in, in the midst of this colonial uh, virus. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely correct. And I, I think this next section is really important, Jamie because we are targeting these banks for reparations, and this is why. It is not just because they profited from the enslavement of African people, which they did, mm -hmm. but it is because they have continued to profit. Their entire business model is based around the oppression of African people. So mm -hmm. this article goes on to say that uh, real estate policies have robbed black home buyers in Chicago of an estimated 3.2 to $4 billion in wealth between 1950 and 1970, these discriminant practices propelled the racial income and wealth inequalities we see today. According to a 2017 report, the average white owned business in Chicago is worth 12 times more than the average black owned business. The median yearly income for a black household in Chicago is less than half of the median white household and a third of black households, a third of black households have a net worth of zero dollars compared to 15% of white households. So 
this is what the article says, and I think this is a good point. All of this amounts to a historic pattern of perpetual systematic looting of Chicago's black community. As of August 13th, at least 42 people have been charged with felonies in the alleged looting three weeks ago. How many bankers have been charged for stealing from black families? So very important question. And that is the question that is at the heart of our campaign to target these banks, to seriously target, harass, expose, and circle, force these banks to pay reparations to African people for the past and present crimes that they commit and enrich themselves off of every single day. Thank you, Jesse. This, this information is so critical to, uh, to know and, and to talk about and, and to, to remember how, how important the, the call for the responsibility of reparations is in this period, not only as, as we were saying for, for what our, our responsibility to history is, but for what's happening currently to presently um, end needless deaths, colonial deaths. So I, I wanted to ask you about this escalation of violence that we're seeing against Africans and other protesters around the demonstrations happening um, you know, from, from Kenosha to Portland and around the country. Definitely. Um, I'll make this really quick, Jamie, but I think it's an important point. We have been seeing armed white vigilantes, and you know, I think it really speaks to the role of the police, as Chairman Amali Shetela has always laid out so clearly, the role of the colonial state, which is there to protect the haves from the have-nots, especially when those who have, have as a consequence of stealing everything they have from those who have not. And it's very apparent when you hear these armed white vigilante groups proclaiming that their mission in traveling into Portland or Kenosha or wherever else is to protect property. And that in turn, the armed white vigilantes are protected by the police. You saw the videos of, of the cops handing out water bottles to the white gunmen in um, Kenosha who you know, ended up shooting and killing two people and they, tell, they told them, we appreciate you guys, you're doing a great job. Uh, this really shows that there's really no difference. You know, the only difference is maybe a, one wears a uniform and one doesn't, but it's both the colonial state. And it's just like when Dylan Roof, you know, went into a church uh, in, um, I believe that was in Virginia, and shot and killed nine African people. South Carolina, I'm pretty sure. South Carolina, Charleston. thank, thank yeah. you. Sorry about that. Um, went, yeah, Charleston, that's right went in and, and shot nine African people. And uh, of course, they, they took him out for, they took him to Burger King. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody saw that. Yeah. They treated him very gingerly. So, um, and they didn't even arrest Kyle Rittenhouse until the next day. So, yeah. and, and they're, they're defending him. They're saying he was, you know, trying to maintain law and order and what have you. So it is really apparent it's the colonial state. It exposes mm -hmm. white people's relationship to the colonial state that, unless we break our allegiance to this system and join under the leadership of the African revolution, every white person is part of the colonial state. We are an extension of the colonial state who have in our hands the power of life and death over African people. And the way to turn that loose and get off the pedestal and turn our backs on colonial white power, we have to join under the leadership. We have to march for reparations to African people and that's what we are going to be doing on October 17th in cities across the U.S. So I want to encourage 
white people listening, if you are disgusted by what you saw happen in Kenosha and in Portland and everywhere else, get on the right side, you know, stand up, get involved, join the March for Reparations, go to uhurusolidarity.org slash march and get involved. Fantastic. Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, thank you so much uh, for this segment. And uh, we want to turn now to the the question of Germany. Um, It was recently reported in the German press that Africans from Namibia are demanding reparations from the German government. Here is what the article says. More than a century since Germany's colonial empire committed numerous atrocities on the African continent, the federal government is being forced to contend with its past head on. Beginning in 2015, negotiations have been ongoing between Namibia and Germany concerning reparations for the genocide of the Herero and Nama ethnic groups in the early 1900s. But although both sides have met on several occasions, very little has been achieved Meanwhile, Tanzania has accused German troops of committing war crimes while suppressing the Maji Maji uprisings between 1905 and 1907, and is also asking for reparations. Now Burundi is urging both Germany and Belgium to pay 36 billion pounds or $42 billion in reparations for, quote, aggressions committed during the time of colonial rule. Jürgen Zimmerer, a professor of African history at the University of Hamburg, says the push for reparations was a long time coming. Berlin was surprised by the demands, although it was foreseeable and for a long time that that this important chapter cannot be swept under the carpet, he told DW. On the other hand, Germany has imposed high moral standards when it comes to coming to terms with its own past. On the other hand, it is reluctant to act when faced with its colonial era crimes committed in Africa. So we wanted to uh, talk about this question, Jesse, of yeah. uh, Europe and its, its relationship to colonial crimes, and in particular, Germany. Germany and its relationship to the term Holocaust, or, or sorry, my mistake, to the term genocide. Yeah. A term, if I'm not mistaken, Jesse, that came out of the uh, German Holocaust against the Jewish people and, and the Nazis. Could you talk a bit about this question of genocide, uh, the European nation, and Germany? Yes, I think this is really important, Jamie, and I just want to salute the incredible um, African resistance that is struggling for Germany to pay reparations for their horrendous genocidal slaughter of African people in Namibia and, and you know, beyond that, you know, everything that you just mentioned with Tanzania and Burundi, um, you know, Germany must pay reparations. Germany and all of Europe and all of the white world owes reparations to African people for the immense horror and suffering that was uh, doled out against African people in order to build the wealth of Europe and white power, um, as Chairman Amali Shatella has, has exposed um, you know, in so much depth and detail in his writings and presentations over the years. And I also just want to acknowledge and salute Secretary General Louise Kinshasa and the African Socialist International throughout Europe, who have been raising this question, and the chairman you know, who went to Europe, and Chairwoman Penny Hess as well, speaking in Berlin, speaking at Humboldt University, speaking in London, speaking in Brussels, speaking in Paris, speaking all over the place in Europe, raising the question of reparations, holding tribunals throughout the 1980s, 
um, you know, the party brought reparations to the world stage and including in Europe. So it is powerful to read this article in the uh, German newspaper. And there's a picture in the article of a, a car. And uh, it looks like something you would see at one of our car actions that we've been doing in USM. It, it's a car. And on the banner on the side of the car, it says Germany must pay Herrero Nama genocide. So it's, it's very powerful. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very inspiring image. I, I encourage people to check it out. Um, it's the, the Herrero and Nama people. Let's, let's continue with this article um, while we have time, Jesse. Be between 1885 and 1919, Germany was the third largest European colonial power in Africa after the United Kingdom and France. The German Empire stretched from Southwest Africa or modern day Namibia to German East Africa, which comprised the territory of today's Burundi, Rwanda, and Tanzania, excluding the island of Zanzibar, as well as areas in modern-day Togo, Ghana, and Cameroon. The empire uh, only lasted a little more than three decades. After it lost the First World War, the German Reich had to cede its colonies to the victorious powers. Although it was a short period, the German colonial system was very radical, says Zimmerer. The colonies had to be conquered de facto everywhere because there was resistance everywhere, which was brutally suppressed by the German side. The bloodiest clashes took place over the course of the 1905 to 1907 Maji Maji uprising in East Africa. Historians estimate up to 300,000 were killed when it was suppressed. During the 1905 to 1908 uprising of the Herero and Nama in Southwest Africa, up to 80,000 people were killed. It was also the first genocide of the 20th century. Namibia, reparations or apology? For the past five years, Germany has been neg negotiating with Namibian authorities over a formal apology for the crimes committed during the colonial era alongside reparations payments. Representatives of the Herero and Nama are clear that they want an official apology from Berlin, but there have been disagreements over which form and which label the reparations should take. Germany wants to face its political and moral responsibility for the crimes committed between 1904 and 1908. Ruprecht Polenz, the federal government's special commissioner for the dialogue with Namibia, told DW. But from the perspective of the federal government, however, he says, it is not a legal issue. This has been stated several times by courts to which parts of the Herero and Nama have referred. It is a political moral question, and it follows from this that we choose terms in the text and declarations that express this and not terms that are legal in a narrower sense. Polenz adds that Germany would prefer to apologize for the crimes sooner rather than later. So yeah, this, this article goes on uh, to, to discuss the, the talking points of, of why you know, Germany owes reparations to the, the Nama and Herero and uh, to the African people of, of the areas that, that it colonized in, in Africa. And I just think that this is, this is so in incredibly important that we're hearing all of these demands um, being brought to the, the, the various European colonial powers at this time when, when we see that reparations as a household word is really catching fire, not only across this country in the wake of, of the George Floyd protests and now uh, Jacob Blake in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, we're, we're seeing it internationally. It's, it's, a, it's a unanimous call. So I, I think that this, this just reinforces what an incredibly significant and exciting time this, this is in history and how incredibly important it is that we continue to raise the call for reparations 
to African people. Any any comments on on that section before we uh, close out the show today, Jesse? Uhuru, Jamie, I totally unite with everything you just said, and I just want to make a call to white people everywhere, including in Germany, to join the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, to join the fight for reparations to African people under the leadership of the African working class. Uhuru. Fantastic. I, I want to thank you, Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, uh, for joining me on Reparations in Action today. I want to uh, salute uh, Black Power 96.3 WBPULP in St. Petersburg um, for allowing us to have this hour every Tuesday at noon to bring the message of, of reparations to African people to you. And want to let everyone know um, in the announcements that the March for Reparations is on October 17th of this year, 2020, in cities across the United States. And you can find out more information about that on our new video at uhurusolidarity.org slash march. That's uhurusolidarity.org slash march. Also, don't miss the next study of Omali Taught Me on Sunday at 8 a.m. Chairman Omalia Shatella's Facebook page and youtube.com slash burning spear 8 a.m this sunday don't miss another fantastic study with chairman omali eschatella you can also listen to the reparations in action podcast this show and fm show and podcast broadcast live every tuesday at 12 p.m on black power 96.3 wbpu lp st petersburg florida and now available as a podcast as well tonight at 7 p.m on Black Power Blueprint's Facebook page and YouTube, there is an event called Muhammad and the LRA. Uh, I believe that's actually John Muhammad and the LRA. Get out of the way, featuring Tacharwa Masimba. You can follow us on Reparations in Action at Podbean by going to uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on Reparations in Action. Thank you.